0: this is game theory a podcast about competition strategy and decision making hosted by me nick andrews and my brother chris in this episode occam doesn't have the only razor the simplest explanation is often the right one that's the gist of occam's razor you've probably heard of it you've probably heard of the razor or the term occam's razor at least But you may not have heard about the eight other philosophical razors. That's right, but there are nine total razors. Some of them dip into linguistics, some were created with tongue-in-cheek blogs, and others are taglines from famous and popular scientists. And one of them we've been saying on this show for years. In our last episode of 2023, we go through the ideas of the nine philosophical razors, their history, uses, examples, and a bit about their creators. And welcome to the Wayne Gretzky episode of Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making where everything's made up and the points don't matter. I know all of you listening. to the great one. Show. <laughs> I know all that's of good.
1: It. Yeah. Well, it's on It's on the artist formerly known as HBO Max, now just known as Max. It's on, they have a bunch of old episodes on there.
0: Uh, everybody, that's a litmus test for people who are allowed to be in my life. Um, that's right. Yeah, huge, Not the
1: new ones. The new ones, they're trying to force it too much. They're a little bit yeah. washed and like, you can tell they're kind of having fun, but they're only kind of having fun, you know? They're only kind of...
0: Well, you can't... It's one of those things. It was like TikTok before TikTok, man. They, they created something special. They ca- captured lightning in a bottle, uh, and it was great. This is Game Theory, where boring is hot. It is our last program of 2024, 2023. The year of our Lord 2024 will be uh, soon-ish, and as a result of that, our first episode lines up perfectly. 20 and 24 is episode 100. We, we will go back through our catalog and we will remember what we learned, which is not like, this is not going to be one of those things. It's If you're here to learn new stuff, um, you should listen to that because you're going to relearn all the new stuff that you totally forgot listening to us be buffoons.
1: That's right. I, I think it's, I'm most excited to try to stump you with some trivia questions, and we need to decide on what the trivia format is going to be. Because obviously, I mean, this is game theory. If mm-hmm. we're we're not doing a review, this isn't studying theory. No, this is game theory. So we're gonna be we're gonna be playing a little trivia based on our previous 100 episodes, and we're gonna kick off the new year in style. And I'm really excited about that. I'm, I'm curious to know. I I don't want to go back and listen to us because no, I I don't, do I don't know if I'll be able to physically recover from amount of cringing that i'll do there's some but links in some of the show cool notes stuff.
0: that there's some links and show notes that i think mm-hmm. are helpful and i think that's what i'm going to end up going through speaking of that we asked all of you to give us feedback we're going to be collecting feedback for like six episodes or so which social media you want us to because we're going to do one i don't have i mean maybe one day there'll be multiple there's a bunch they're all set up they all have like 20 followers or 50 followers because we're not we haven't been growing them like a garden but we're going to pick one and we're going to do it so far we have one piece of datum and that is for Reddit. So Reddit is out to an early one nothing lead. None of you have gotten in touch with us, but that's okay. Well, so,
1: Well, what? actually, huh? shout out to my boy, Did you just well Chuck. actually me? I did well actually you. Oh,
0: nice.
1: Uh, shout out to my boy, Chuck, who came in with the brilliant suggestion that we focus on truth social. Ooh. So Reddit is tied True.
0: And you truth think social. If we do truth social, when Donald becomes the 47th president of the United States, he'll give us a, uh, little, a nice little cabinet position secretary of uh, on-demand audio i'll be the secretary of on-demand audio
1: we'll be we'll be the ministers of light casual entertainment
0: (laughs) uh my dog is sleeping upside down next to me Tis the season chris um the wife and i have a bowl game situation coming up where we went to opposite schools and as a result of that Mm. we uh have to deal with fighting each other in the in the peach bowl so that's that's really exciting
1: yeah, how is that? How's that going to go? Because I, I feel like I, care I feel more like than the wifey does. gets her heckles up yeah. most often when other people are talking about her football team. I feel like it's it's more of like a like a responsive fan. She
0: wifey is grade. a hate watcher. She um actually okay, the, actual, like the only time I've ever had a moment that could have definitely gone viral, like definitely have gone viral <laughs> on TikTok as a fan was I was really engaged in something and like the Lions. For this is a quick sports tangent. They traded away their best player. They're like, we're going to break it down. Draft picks. We're going to start over. And I was like, I like this coach. They're fighting hard. They almost beat. They, they, They pissed off the Niners, and now we're playing the Baltimore Ravens. And they're Lamar Jackson and these are famous players and they're really good, but we're gonna try to beat them and they played their asses off. They played awesome. They were winning the whole game and then miracle pass and then another miracle pass. And they trot out the best field goal kicker in the history of the sports for a sixty-six yard. Well, and, and this field. is when
1: this is when they got screwed. They they, got, they, they did, actually, delaying, I mean game. verifiably snapped the ball too late and got a game winning first down. And (sighs) otherwise it would have been penalized, had the clock run down. And like that would have ended the game right there. Not functionally, like by, by By rule rule. would have ended the game. So they got screwed screwed on that one.
0: And then they trot out the best kicker of all time for a 66 yard field goal, which would have been the NFL record. Wife opens the door. She had been running. She comes in to watch the field goal. She watches it bounce with me. I was like, they're going to win a game against a good team. This is crazy. Everyone said they'd go. Oh, and 16. It Bounces off the upright and falls in. And I collapse on the couch. And she just cackles like a ghoul on Halloween. And I was like, just support. get!" On. I remember I was like, get on board. Get on board. <laughs> and she's like, I'm sorry. That was so funny. I was like, it wasn't funny to me. The,
1: uh, like of all, the, of all the times to walk in it was during the course of that game.
0: She has an insane curse. She simply cannot watch teams. If you're invested in a team, just tell her to get out. Because they were winning literally the entire time until the door opened.
1: So you guys are going to have a really weird time then because her, her team is playing your team. Yeah, I wanted to watch the game. really. And, bad. yeah, we got to watch well it. Well, they can't. They can't both lose, right? exactly. So, so she, her, she wants her happen. team to win. So we need, we need her to
0: watch it. Right? Exactly. So, a couple other things I want to address the elephant in the room, which is that uh, my New Year's resolution was to learn Microsoft Excel, and I made zero progress. Zero. Yeah, how is
1: that coming along? Have you have you thought about starting? I mean, I think you have. So got. Like a week and change. No, nope, haven't to make started.
0: Some um, there. but I've gained fifteen pounds, so it's been a great year.
1: Good. Yeah. Well, personal growth <laughs> means a lot of things to a lot of. Wow, people.
0: that just wow well, the smile on your face. I'm kidding. You're such a tool. Okay, let's talk about today's episode. Um, YouTube. Get in touch with us about what social media platform matters to you. Also, book club newsletter, other stuff you want us to do. Um, the newsletter is not dead. It's it's gone, but not forgotten. So that's definitely possible. Today, we are doing. Philosophical razors. Now, everybody's heard of Occam's razor, which in a nutshell, kind of true. People kind of get it wrong. The the simplest explanation is often the best or something. We'll we'll get into that in a second. But there is something else, Chris, that Hanlon's razor is something that we have been saying loosey-goosey on the show, and it turns out it's a razor after a guy named Hanlon.
1: Yeah, it turns out we're not the first people to think up our own motto we might be the first people to try to coin boring is hot although i'm sure a lot of people have tried to use that i feel like people probably tried to use that in the days like before tinder when it was like dating service videos right. where you have to like record a little greeting right like hi my name is john and remember
0: I'm completely unremarkable and that's okay it's i love those when those go reviral those are so great and it's not it's not confrontational and it is not uh contrarian as hot it is boring is hot
1: boring is hot boring yeah is hot. and so we're obviously not the first people to come up with that. And it turns out our motto, our other motto, which is never attribute to malice, what can be attributed to incompetence. That's Hanlon's razor. Hanlon. That's somebody else I named Hanlon, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's Something called that, Hanlon's, Hanlon's razor. It, 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 the exact quote on Wikipedia is stupidity, which is a really a much better thing. So um, Robert J. Hanlon from Scranton, Pennsylvania, came up with Hanlon's razor. It is one of nine philosophical razors. So should we go down the name of them and then what they are? Cause some of these, I'm like, I kind of get it. I don't get it. They're philosophical. They're the philosophical I think, razors.
1: I think we ought to crack these open basically one at a time, like sure. a holiday nine pack, because we're recording this on what is legally considered the last productive Friday of the work year. Yeah. Now for those of you who have email jobs, <laughs> this is probably the fourth or fifth unproductive Friday in a row. And that'll culminate next week as we head into the New Year holiday, which New Year's Day is on Monday, Monday January twenty uh, fourth. Uh, yeah. So we're we're in for we're in for a pretty, I would say, low value Friday in terms of workout. But so I think we should just go through these like we're like we're drinking holiday beers, like we're doing game right. theory beers, and talk about each one of these kind of in turn for some light casual. Right, well, thing. here's
0: let's just start with the, the stats first. There are six razors, one. Fal- falsifiability, <laughs> one standard, and one guillotine. But they're all A guillotine, the Yeah, the guillotine. So let's start at the top. Let's do alphabetical order. And I might as well share my screen for those of you watching on the Boob tube. Um just because we're trying to care more about this. Just because of you guys. What inter- entertainment. Right. So here they are. Alder's Razor, also known as Newton's Flaming Laser Sword. We're going to start there, but we're going to end there because that's the best one. Um, oh it God. is, if something cannot be settled by experiment or observation, then it is not worthy of debate, which is fascinating. The idea is that if you can't observe it in science, then it shouldn't even be discussed. So the hubris there, fascinating, but we'll we'll circle back to that one. How about that?
1: Yeah, that one's just raw, unadulterated arrogance. And like, <laughs> you can kind of get where where it's coming. Like Alder wrote a, a cheeky little essay about this. And there are some interesting points to consider on that. But basically, it's th- that one's another case where the principle tells us less about ideas and more about the smart ass who propagated the principle. Right. So we'll, 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 we'll finish up with that one.
0: All right. Razor number two. Ready to go.
1: I was taking a sip right as you said that. I, know, I thought surely timing. he's going to keep rolling. You had, you had some good <laughs> momentum going there. <laughs> really, really good stuff.
0: Uh, Got okay, so to raise the,
1: the second one. The second one. Einstein's razor. Nick, you ever heard of this guy, Einstein?
0: I'm pretty sure this is his cousin. Just joking us Yeah, too.
1: yeah, <laughs> Alfred Einstein. <laughs> no, Einstein's razor is, and I'm quoting again from Wikipedia here, right. the supreme goal of all theory is to make the irreducible basic elements as simple and as few as possible without having to surrender the adequate representation of a single datum of experience. So good luck if anybody caught up with that. Yeah. There, is a, there is a paraphrase here, yeah. though, for those of us who lost our attention span halfway through. It's Uh, paraphrased as make things as simple as possible, but no simpler.
0: Yeah. Um, which seems I kinda like that one the most. I think there are a lot of bosses and coaches out there that should really take notes on that one. Just explain it as simply as possible, but make sure I know what I need to know. Like you've ever heard somebody said like, what was it, Oceans Eleven, don't use seven words when four will do, but make sure that the four words cover everything essentially.
1: Yeah, precisely. Well, and those of you who are doing like academic writing know that the reason the abstract is up front is because most of the time people don't have time to go into the studies. Like you can't read all the scientific literature that's out there. You can't read all the business journals that are out there. So people want an executive summary so you can kind of get the get the real big highlights. And if you're walking around with two or three ideas in your head, those are the ones that you want. Right. I know people who who do both academic writing and intelligence writing, which is where you know people will. Break down raw intelligence reporting to do some kind of analysis for, you know, national security issues or economic issues or whatever. And a big part of that is is what's called the bluff, the bottom line up front. And it's like, okay, if you had one sentence to explain the idea, what would you cram into that sentence? The elevator pitch. And that's right. where, yeah, 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 exactly. And that's that's where Einstein's razor comes into play. It's like this has to be maximally simple while still covering everything. Like truly, never use seven words when four will do. Right. Great exactly.
0: OK, moving right along so that I like that one. I, I, I think Einstein was like, you know, which is what he kind of did. He boiled things, atoms and blah, blah, blah. OK, Grice's he, razor. So,
1: sorry, say that, say that again. He kind of boiled things like atoms. He,
0: he boiled things down like he did. Oh, OK, he be molecular stuff like that was what his like, his no. work was in. Right. Physics, like at the micro level, he was with the, in the nuclear stuff. I don't know. Stop. Yeah. I don't care. OK, well, moving right along. we're on the, the second one. We have to keep Brownian going
1: in motion. And he, he developed the general theory of relativity upon which almost all of modern physics is based. Yes, he did fundamentally change our understanding of the natural world. Yes, But what if Moving he was on.
0: wrong? Stick around for my hour-long History <laughs> Channel special. Gr- Grice's Razor, which is also known as Geim's Razor? I don't know. I'm not going to guess. We'll get around that. Um, this is a linguistic one. We'll dive more into this one because it took me a while to understand it. And by understanding, I just read the paragraph a couple times and didn't get it. So we'll circle back to this one. Conversational implications are to be preferred over semantic context for linguistic explanations. Do you have thoughts on that sentence?
1: Let me say it aloud and see if I can understand it. As a principle of parsimony, (laughs) conversational implications are to be preferred over semantic context for linguistic explanations. I'm going to be honest with you, no. I, don't, I yeah. don't know what that So means.
0: for those of us uh, that don't know what's going on, parsimony is an extreme unwillingness to spend money or use resources. From what I... It seems like I'm just guessing. So we'll just do this one more time. As a principle of parsimony, which is being a tight-ass, conversational implications are to be preferred over semantic context for linguistic explanations, which means that I, I kind of think that the content matters more than the context Like when you're reading books and stuff. Remember when they're, what are the context clues? This is kind of saying the context clues are dumb is like the way I'm reading it.
1: That, I mean, that's, I guess that's as good as interpretation. Right. As so I can think up. about it
0: like this. We remember can, John Steinbeck walked out of a lecture because it's the people who were lecturing to like, this is what the book's about. And he said, no, these are the words of the page. This is what the book's about. I think that's what it is. I think it was like, no, we don't have to know if this character is secretly gay or the color of the curtains mean the economy's bad like what it means is that the curtains are blue like that's it i that's kind of what i gather but i will look into that
1: well i'm just looking at grice's wikipedia page here and so he was uh he was a 90, or a 20th century philosopher like a he was a linguist and you know i i'm reading this now i should have asked my linguist Fiancee. Yeah, what a waste of
0: uh, resources that was.
1: Yeah, no kidding. So Paul Grice, born in 1913, uh, died in the late 1980s. He was uh, a British guy who was really influential in the philosophy of language. And according to his wiki, his most influential contribution to philosophy and linguistics is his theory of implicature, which stated in an article in 1961 yeah, uh, it, it it basically means it, according to Grice, what a speaker means by an utterance can be divided into what the speaker says versus what the speaker thereby implicates. Yeah, so it's like what are the words that I'm using, and then what is the meaning that I'm conveying? Which I don't know if that's exactly right. I'm sure there's a much better way to to describe and understand that. But I guess what the razor is trying to get at is that the the, the meaning of like the words that are used are less important than the actual meaning like the ideas that they convey
0: yeah so for example saint augustine had a similar observation because he was really obsessed with words and the economy of words and said people often misuse good uh like what the word good actually means like i feel good to be i feel healthy i feel rested um or something is good as like maybe it is pleasurable it is tasty but people say good and as a result like what is goodness like, is like piece of purity is it T- the taste of something. So, that, I think that that's kind of like what if I say it, t- it tastes good, then I don't need any further explanation. So it's like a it's an economy of words and understanding what people mean not what they say.
1: Yeah, I th- I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, and you, you mentioned Augustine, that reminds me that it, I think it was in On Christian Doctrine in the introduction to that, he w- I remember like something that comes to mind all the time. If you if you've ever dealt with like trying to explain something to somebody or trying to educate like if there are any educators out there, maybe this matches your experience. Uh, Saint Augustine was bitching in this introduction to on Christian doctrine about his students who are like so caught up in looking at the details and I, I don't know if he would have used the expression missing the missing the forest for the trees, but he was he was complaining how his students weren't really weren't really getting at the meaning of what he was saying. And so he's like, It's like if I pointed to the heavens to draw their attention to God and then my students spent the whole lesson looking at my finger. Like, no, well, we're we're missing the point here. So yeah. I I think that makes a ton of sense. Sure. I, 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 I I don't know if I understand the razor, but I think I understand the razor. Price's razor. So
0: yeah, we'll get rid of that one. Maybe uh, that, one, that one's pretty complicated. Hume's guillotine, pretty complicated too. Still have the uh, shared thing up on the screen here. Hitchens' razor. So Hanlon's razor is next. Never attribute to malice what can be uh, adequately explained by stupidity. That one's easy peasy lemon squeezy. Is it, is everyone against you and they're being malintent or are they idiots? And we're like mm, they're probably idiots. Hitchens' yep. razor: that which can be asserted without evidence. Can be dismissed without evidence. Um, the Earth is flat. No, it isn't. Prove it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. No. Done. So, so Hitchens, so Christopher Hitchens is uh, is one of the uh, he's like the four one of the four atheist horsemen of the atheist apocalypse or whatever. Yeah. He's a really influential person and speaker. He, uh, he He's gotten into hot water a couple of times, I feel like, because he's, like, one of these guys that lives on the edge. And he's, like, an actual, like, intellectual person. But he also yeah. kind of, uh, I, I don't know if what he's his pop take culture would have been on. Kind of guy. Yes, he was. Yeah, so he died in 2011. And I think that was before the term, like, woke made it into the parlance. But he feels like the type of guy who would complain about people being, like, going woke on stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, regardless, he he's the author of a bunch of books that are, like, kind of atheist manifestos like uh, God is not great is a, is a classic among people who are uh, inclined to want to refute religion. And the basic idea is that you have to prove so like the burden of proof is on the affirmative. If you're going to make a claim, you have to provide the warrant for that claim, whether yeah. that's some kind of physical evidence or some kind of rational proof, you have to supply the justification for things that you claim are true. So then if you, if you make a claim, Without any evidence, and there really isn't any evidence to support the claim that you make, then somebody who listens to that claim doesn't have to be expected to take it at face value. In fact, they can expect to just dismiss it and say, "No, I don't think that's true." And the, the burden of proof is not on them to disprove the claim, because there was no burden of proof fulfilled by the affirmative in the first place. Yeah. So you don't have to you don't have to provide evidence to to refute something that somebody claims but does not have a warrant for. Is the basic idea behind that. Yeah. And so obviously the the focus of this razor then would be like you know God exists. Like well if there's no proof of that then you can just dismiss that and move on.
0: You can just so look, I I like to think of it as this. You can be like um, hey crazy I say crazy thing and then you say hmm sounds fake prove it and they're like well but, but oh okay so it sounds fake bye and that that's just kind of it. Like there's no and I, it's an interesting philosophical kind of thing conversationally because he's just kind of saying. If you can't prove it, then we're just kind of bullshitting. There's nothing. Happening.
1: Yeah, Well, and, and it, it won't surprise anybody to learn that this is, not, this is not a Christopher Hitchens original. I mean, he might have originally thought of it himself and, and phrased it in the way that he did. Uh, but there's a Latin proverb that goes along with this kind of line of thinking. Uh, the Latin proverb is quad gratis uh, assertur,
0: gratis Whoa. negatur,
1: Whoa. which means what is freely asserted can be freely Wait, deserted. No. no, hold on. Nice Latin. What we, what, Good job with the Latin. You. Thank you. I was wondering what you were getting at. <laughs> yeah, it's <was>, my bad. <laughs> I forgot. what 20, yeah. Was. You know, maybe your maybe your New Year's resolution in twenty twenty four should be to become competent with the sound effects board. But only competent. Only competent. Uh, and there's there's also attribution to uh, a Roman jurist guy, a guy named Julius Paulus, who was, uh, who lived between the second and third centuries uh, in the uh, anno domini. Mm. And the 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 translation for what. Julius Paulus said was proof lies on he who asserts and not on he who denies in other words the burden of proof is on the affirmative and so you can you can free yourself from having to waste time with somebody making stuff up if they don't provide any support or evidence or proof that their made-up statement is true
0: okay that makes sense to me um, because it's like a it's like it seems like this is just a way to preemptively end a fight with people who can't prove anything, which is fine. I like that. It's a good, you know, it's, the, these razors are very aligned with me with logical fallacies, and we'll get to the falsifiability one later. But would you like the honor of doing the guillotine? Hume's guillotine.
1: I would, yes. Hume's guillotine. And A lot of words. Once again, quoting directly here.
0: <laughs> a lot of words.
1: If the cause assigned for any effect... Be not sufficient to produce it. We must either reject the cause, or add to it such qualities as will give it a just proportion to the effect. Um, Let me say that another way. Okay. That was that's written down here also in the article. What ought to be cannot be deduced from what is. Prescriptive claims cannot be derived solely from descriptive claims, and must depend on other prescriptions. Okay. So, Nick, do you know what do you know what the difference is between
0: prescriptive and descriptive no. claims? pretty seems. Before D, it seems, in real time.
1: Well, a prescription, like in like in medicine, a prescription is for like a medication or a treatment of some kind right. that a doctor in his or her expert judgment says that a patient needs in order to deal with a specific medical condition or set of medical conditions. So the patient ought to receive the treatment that the doctor prescribes. Right. You with me? Yep. Okay. So then descriptive would be like the patient is already taking XYZ medication. The doctor doesn't need to prescribe it. Ah, mm. oh, yes, mm. the, the grunt of understanding. Totally.
0: Um, no, I get it. I, so when I first read this, you actually might have confused me, teacher. When I first read this, my thing was sort of like, it, don't jump to conclusions. This is essentially a complicated way of being like, just because this doesn't necessarily mean that.
1: Well, no, I, I, I don't. I don't even think jumping to conclusions is is quite it. It's that if you're describing things the way they are, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how things ought to be. Ah, uh, ought to be. Like for example, you could you can rightly point out that I don't know, violent crime has risen by forty percent in Washington D.C. year over year from twenty twenty three to from twenty twenty two to twenty twenty three. By the way, that's actually true. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that that's how it ought to be or, and, and you know that, so you can say that with, with any example and that's, that's been described as the is ought problem. And you know, the basic point here is that if you're saying, if you're describing the state of things philosophically in terms of reason, in terms of logic, in terms of, I don't know, scientific observation, whatever, whatever the case is, that's not necessarily connected to how things ought to be. And, so you can't you can't just say well you know that's the, the status quo is X Y Z and that's how it should be like well no there there's not there's not a causal there's not a causal connection between those so strategies. okay
0: so that's an interesting one in terms of game theory in my opinion because game theory dictates just in general that competition is important and it's going to happen and the only thing to do is to play the game and to be both aggressive and also occasionally cooperative occasionally anti cooperative to make those decisions. What ought to be is a philosophical assertion or a spiritual assertion, and what is is sort of game theory. Game theory to me is sort of like observed, it's just part of our world. You have to, you can't opt out, you know, if you're, unless yeah. you're wealthy or something, but no one can opt out. But this is kind of saying that just well, because the game theory is playing out this way doesn't mean that's how things should be going.
1: I mean, that's, that's one potential example of, uh, of Hume's guillotine. So we, we talk about like what's like the first kind of, foundational principle of game theory that we got to talk about is the Nash equilibrium yep. it's the it's the prisoner's dilemma that comes up in all kinds of game theory scenarios where okay if you got to do the two by two matrix and consider cooperator defect cooperator defect for each player and there's four basic outcomes that can occur two of which are kind of mirror images of each other the rational thing to do is calculated by the math that's in that scenario and that's a description of what is. So game theory is trying to get at how things actually are, and from that you can deduce like what's the rational course of action, like the the, the rational thing to do is described according to the following mathematics, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how you ought to play. You can, you can say like, okay, the, the irrational thing for me to do would be to try to cooperate with my fellow prisoner and... I think that I'm going to do that even though I know it's irrational. There's some other imperative or some other prescriptive thing that tells me that I should cooperate with people. Like if 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 I live by the principle that it's always better to be nice even if that means taking being taken advantage of. That's a different prescriptive set of values that's imposed on the situation. You know, absent that, then I'm going to then I'm going to defect every time in the prisoner's dilemma. But if I have like some kind of moral code yeah. or some other kind of ethical judgment in play, then that's going to affect my decision-making. And I think that actually has an effect on what the rational course of action is. You know, for me, if I'm going to cooperate, then the sensible thing for my partner to do is to defect, actually. Mm. But regardless, you know, describing how things are with the game theory mathematics doesn't necessarily mean that that's how we ought to behave. And that's when we're getting into, like, morals and moral systems and how ethical conduct is actually... Kind of meted out or described, or um, that, yeah, how people can use other forms of value judgments other yeah. than like rational decision making, and that becomes like that's, that's like life.
0: First Amendment stuff, like what matters to you, speech, spirituality, religion, etc. Um, which yeah, I I mean, like basically
1: that everything that's like contained in the First Amendment, like that could that could change the way that you think about different cooperator defect scenarios. Right, exactly.
0: Okay, my turn. Occam's razor. Uh, the number one most famous razor. Yeah, hell yeah. Occam. Um, <laughs> preferred razor. The preferred razor. The razor of my choice. The razor, of the Occam's razor of the month club. Explanations which require fewer unjustified assumptions are more likely to be correct, as in avoid unnecessary, unnecessary or improbable assumptions. One good example of this is if you hear hooves, think emu. No, if you hear hooves, yes. don't think zebra. Exactly. That's an easy one, yep, and we exactly. all know that one, but we can circle back on some examples on that, and I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and take Popper, too. Popper's falsifiability, because I think it plays in to one we did um, a, a little earlier about Alder. I think it's, it's similar to the Alder one. Popper's falsifiability principle, or is it Hitchens? I don't know. We'll get into it, sorry. Popper's falsifiability principle. For a theory to be considered scientific, it must be falsifiable. So theoretically, similar to like gravity and very specific, so you should be able to until something is a law, it's a theory, like the theory of relativity. We don't know. We, pro- we kind of know, but we don't know, no. It should be theoretically impossible to, to disprove something also.
1: Yeah, and, and this is kind of a, this is his contribution to kind of the field of deductive reasoning. You know, so Karl Popper, who wrote this 1934 book called The Logic of Scientific Discovery, proposed that if a theory or hypothesis is falsifiable like if it, if it can be refuted then uh, it, it, it's you know he said it can be falsifiable if it can be logically contradicted by some kind of empirical test so the example that we're given here is the statement all swans are white well that statement is falsifiable and would be falsifiable even if there was no black swan to actually falsify it. right so it, you could well falsifiable. All right, right. Right. It's it it could be the case that like one day people would, you know, if we lived in a world where every single swan ever observed was white, uh, it's possible that one day we could wake up and see a black swan floating, gliding gently down the river, menacingly down the river or doing whatever it is. they do. Swans are
0: scary. Um, Don't screw with them. They're not your friends. They are actually I'm a big bird person. It's like a little obvious. I mean, the nerds, one of us is 50 50 shot. One of us had to be into birds. I like birds. Uh, They're the scariest and they're probably the smartest. Don't. They're not like geese. They're not idiot assholes. They're like genius like assassins. They're not to be screwed with.
1: I think you're absolutely right, and I will say this is an exact example of what St. Augustine was talking about when he like pointed to the heavens and the students were looking at his finger. Mm. The swan thing was an example, yeah. and Nick, you've done a great job of latching on to that example. I
0: love swans. They're so figure. impressive. Uh, people it's should good. like swans. Yeah. Okay, so last one. <laughs> Would you like to take the Carl Sagan one? You deserve it. I think that you're a big Saganite.
1: I deserve a big Sagan. You like Carl? Wow, I I do like Carl. I think anybody that likes popular science
0: likes Carl. He kind of invented what Neil deGrasse Tyson became.
1: Well, and Bill Nye made popularized for like really young kids.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So Sagan's standard. This is this one's pretty simple, and it's it to me it it kind of it, it does connect to Hitchens' razor pretty closely. Sagan's standard is that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence.
0: Which on the surface seems like really cool, like a cool tagline, but it kind of, there's something deeper there for me because if you make something, an extraordinary claim, it's not just like, how do I put this? If it was a small scientific advancement, it wouldn't be an extraordinary claim. It would be something that logically comes next that many people have probably hypothesized. If you make an extraordinary claim, it's like, yo, this is new. Like, this is something we had not even, like, oh. So you have to prove multiple things before we even get there. And so that that's kind of the depth here for me is that it's not just like, oh, this is the next logical step in in, in the, the, the discovery of scientific stuff. It's, it, this is an extraordinary claim. You've got a lot to prove here. I, I watched a documentary on some, some such streaming service, who knows or cares. It was about, it was about finding these people in a cave in South Africa and saying, this is, we have not, discovered bone structures like this we have not discovered this and this would not be a link from lucy to homo sapien this would be a different spoke in the wheel These your different humanoids and the, their claim was that and you're gonna this end of the story is gonna piss you off so much but i don't care i'm gonna have to figure it out
1: great um, can't wait thanks their
0: claim was that because of the way people were buried and like it's really creepy in the documentary that's like shimmy through this cave thing and like not for me no thank you way too tight gross it scary oh
1: i don't i don't like those videos no. man oh. where people are like spelunking through they like slide like it takes i don't know one miscalculation for you to basically be permanently entombed Stop. and you that, like you just you just utah, die over that a period happened of like in days lifetime in utah that happened oh. oh yeah i don't i
0: don't it's like closed that off now so anyway they go do this stuff they go in there and they, and they you shimmy down this thing they call it like the devil slide or something annoying like that. And so you go down this thing and then there's this big thing, and there's people in there, and they found bodies, and they found bodies laid out, and the skeletons were like this, which is like pretty intense. And they're like, the animals. To come For those of
1: you who are not watching on YouTube, Nick, Nick Scott, his Nick arms. Scott, his arms crossed over his chest, in like a like imagine like a vampire, yeah. like coming out of a coffin or something and standing straight up, like that's so that's the pose that they were all. How, how many of them were? I think there, that you know?
0: they were like not a lot, like three or four, but enough that they were like this is this seems burial groundy, which would assume that implies burial ground stuff for animals and for humanoids. That implies a level of intelligence that puts you way high up on the spectrum when, when you're doing archaeological stuff. And you're like, these were intelligent, hmm. walk on two feet things, and this is a different spoke. It's like, okay, that is that is an extraordinary claim. Like You have some shit to prove here. Like You have to keep digging. We have to radiocarbon date this, and these need to not be other homo I guess spokes on the, the wheel. This you have, and that's carbon dating and a bunch of other stuff. But here's the annoying part of the story: I did not finish the documentary. I went to sleep. <laughs> what, what, what are we doing? Here? I, don't, I don't know. I gotta Google it. What are we doing here? We're literally
1: talking <laughs> yeah. about stuff that you half I, remember no. that you didn't even you didn't even fully watch. You're half, you're quarter remembering a story. It
0: was one of those boring as hot things where like boring is hot, but boring is also tiring.
1: Yes. Yes, it is. Well, let me give you another example that we could possibly use that connects kind of Occam's razor and Sagan's standard. So Sagan's standard is ontologically connected to Occam's razor because, generally speaking, simplicity is preferred when it comes to these, these kind of theories. And I, and wh- what was the – it was uh, – I don't know. It was somebody else's razor that – like, if you can oh, – oh, it's Einstein's razor. The goal of theory is to simplify things as much as possible. Simpler explanations are preferred. Occam's razor, same story. The simplest explanation is the most likely. Hitchens, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Nick, I don't know if you're going to remember this. You probably will. But people who are living in my neck of the woods in, in, the, in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area mm-hmm. will remember a story from a couple of years ago. In the second half of 2021, I think in, uh, I think in September, it was like August or September in 2021, zebras escaped from an enclosure shut up and we're running wild in suburban Maryland
0: shut, so they're really actually you hear yeah. so
1: <laughs> yes so so if you're walking around generally speaking in America zebras are not native like if you're not a zookeeper and you hear hoofbeats, you think okay that's probably horses somewhere in the distance I can't see it I can't verify it but the simplest explanation is that there are wild horses or somebody's got like a ranch or something nearby and there are horses around me well for a while in Maryland <laughs> that was not actually the case it could be possible that if you hear hoofbeats running around it's like in suburban maryland in prince george's in prince george's county there might actually be zebras on the loose like around the corner that. or around the next block so much. yeah so it's it's an extraordinary claim because obviously zebras are not native to maryland so day to day you're not going to you're not going to expect that but the extraordinary proof is like well we know that there are two at least two zebras who have been running around Maryland for the last several months. So the extraordinary claim that there really are zebras somewhere in Prince George's County. Well, that's backed up by the extraordinary proof that, Oh yeah, zebras actually did escape and they've been on the loose for like four months. They were captured. They were found on a private farm outside of PG County or in PG County, outside of kind of the city in mid December, 2021 after nearly four months of being on the road. Uh, One of them, uh, did die. So, th- th- this is an article by uh, Alyssa Lukpat, who was writing for the New York Times at the time. It says, almost for uh, almost four months, two escaped zebras had built a life for themselves in the fir-
0: suburban <laughs> built terrain a of life Maryland. For
1: yes, mm. <laughs> yes. Uh, two zebras, uh, th- and, and this is just like reading from the, the subheadline there. Two, the two zebras had escaped with another, so there were three zebras, and the, the other was later found dead. And they delighted residents for a period of several months. But th- this is an example of where, like, okay, if you didn't know that, if you hadn't been reading the news or if you hadn't been aware of, like, the goings-on in the county and you heard hoofbeats, like, okay, there's probably horses there, it would be extraordinary to tell somebody, like, oh, my God, I found zebras out here in my neighborhood. So that, I, I that. mean, that's a, that's a fun example, yes. and that's one that get, commonly gets name checked. But that was that was actually true. And so Sagan's standard in that case was qualified by like, oh yeah, there's additional information here, and that's the zebras really do. I love
0: what a great example. I do feel incredibly guilty for not putting a bow on the new hominid found in South Africa. So I'm going to let you be the voice of Player Three. And do we want to learn more about the South African cave people, or do we not? This is your moment. Do you know more about the I South African cave up right now?
1: All
0: right, I want to know more about the South African Kay. cave. In 2013, I, I want to hear 2014, 2015. They found a new cave thing with the little the devil slide thing. They probably put a robot or maybe like some sort of grad student down there. Some someone they could something sparable. <laughs> but you repeat yourself. <laughs> So they found this cave system. It's called the Rising Star Cave System. This was global news. So those of you like, oh, yeah, I remember. It was like front page news in the New York. Geology front page news in the New York Times in 2013 is pretty rare. So wow. this was a big deal. It's a pretty good documentary. It's a little boring, but boring is hot. So um, boring hot. the Rising Star Cave System, they found stuff. And the big conclusion of the documentary was, like, was it dated to a point? Could these be carbon dated to a point? They, they thought that it would be after... Larger brain, larger body hominids had been discovered based on surrounding rocks and stuff. They're like, the, our hypothesis is that this is after larger brain hominids had been uh, developed, which would mean that this did not lead okay. to what we are now. This was a different, a, a, a path diverging in the wood. This is a different thing. So, which would have wow. been extraordinary, okay. because we know, like, we're developing, we're developing Neanderthals, other stuff, we're developing, etc. This would have been after Neanderthals. Neanderthals. Jesus, you've been watching some Afrikaner documentaries. no Joe Rogan so, clips on TikTok. Just kidding. <laughs> so this was big extraordinary claim. So, um, they found that it is called Homo naledi. I think is how it's pronounced. Homo naledi was indeed dated back to between. 335,000 years ago and 236,000 years ago, which would have been long, long after much larger brain and more modern looking hominids had appeared. Geologists estimate that the cave in which the fossils were discovered is no older than 3 million years. And as a result from Flowstone, where the fossils were discovered, was dated as well to about 400,000 years ago to about 236,000 years ago. In the Rising Star cave system, they found about 700 skeletal remains. I think there were only a couple different people, but there were different bones. So the 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 there were a couple really good skeletal remains, but there were also bones and stuff there. So the graveyard could have been there for a long time. And the, the hypothesis now is that they were living in the area and they were specifically dragging bodies through this little city, which they were much more adapted to going through the scary thing than we are that they were dragging in them there and burying them as like a religious ceremony. It implies kind of religion is the hypothesis.
1: Wow. That's a, <laughs> that, that's a really interesting explanation. Of course, that's another, that's another case where like, all right, this was for religious ceremonial purposes. Maybe it looks like that, but maybe, maybe it wasn't, yeah. you know, that's, that's, that's a case where like the simplest explanation would be that like something that's so primitive and so hiding old the bodies would be doing. From yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, well, I mean that's a, that's an explanation. Maybe that maybe it was a religious yep, exactly. ceremony. Like that's been part of basically every human culture that's ever been in every time and place right. ever. So I don't know. That's a that, that's a really interesting example, though. What what did you say the name of the species uh, Homo was? Homo
0: naledi. N a l e d i.
1: I'm pretty sure Homo naledi is the name of the new lesbian bar in DC. <laughs> I could be wrong.
0: Uh, <laughs> if it's if it's not, maybe it maybe, should be. Maybe it should be, but there, so like, I mean, it's a really beautiful chamber in this cave where these bodies were found. So if you're these people, and you're scientist, scientists, and you're like, okay, we found many humans, and they're like, that's crazy. This is literally career-altering stuff. But then you're like, yeah, we actually think this disrupts the entire timeline of human evolution. Everyone's like, fricker, fricker, what?
1: <laughs> you're gonna have to. <laughs> well, that that, that is kind of crazy. Yeah. It's, well, and I feel like every once in a while we hear news stories about like paleontologists who discover remains or whatever in like the extreme North or in Siberia. And they're like, we have a new theory about how humankind made its way across the Bering Strait and how the native American peoples like early, early, early ancestors would have made it through. And like the timeline completely shifted. And it's just, it's just so hard. Like we're, we're on a planet that's, I don't know how many billion years old the earth is. But it's so old and so much has happened on the surface of it. And it's like how, you know, kudos to to paleontologists and geologists for trying to figure out so much in such a short, like our lifespans are so short and they have to account for so much data and there's so many data mm, sorry thank you and so much <laughs> of like natural history in, in their theories like it's it really is amazing that people are able to do that with so much certainty and so much uh, knowledge given the scientific tools that they have at their disposal. well think,
0: think about the implication of we found the bodies laying flat is like oh they buried them yeah. here like ah, uh, these are bones like other other hominids could have come back and arranged them that way like 100,000 years ago and like that even thinking about That's what a hundred thousand yeah. years would look like in relationship to a human life is like no one knows like we have no they didn't have c c t v or ring cameras like people could have spent screwing with this for. A hundred thousand years and like they would have no idea. It's so like that's that's quite the leap, but carbon dating is not a leap. That is scientific proof. And so when they say it's like about yeah. two twenty-five to about three fifty, period. That's the end of that conversation. So that that's that is incredibly fascinating. Their brains were big in proportion to their body, but smaller than other hominids' brains, which have been developed hundreds of thousands of years earlier. So this is this is Um, an example of human evolution that this hominid had developed in a different way. And they, they made this extraordinary clip and very, very rarely in geology and, and, um, archaeology and anthropology are quantum leaps like this made. It seems to be happening more and more now as we have the ability to date shit, but people want to dig places all the time. And most of the time when you go dig somewhere, you don't find jack shit. You just find dirt.
1: Yeah. Well, generally, I mean, the the Earth's surface is just so, so huge and there's so many places to go. Uh, speaking of carbon yeah. dating, we're, we're going to go on a little tangent sure, here. Sure, here. sure, sure, sure. We'll, we'll
0: back to the so,
1: so carbon dating is based on the ratio of some certain isotopes of carbon. So going back to chemistry class, carbon, of course, has six protons in it. And that's the definition of carbon, like the nucleus with six protons. Uh, So it's got six electrons, it's really active, it can bond with a bunch of different stuff. And that's why most organic molecules are made of carbons, because it's such a versatile atomic structure that it can make all kinds of bonds and all kinds of reactions and stuff. When there's an isotope of it, where most carbon that you see in, or in the earth's surface or in the atmosphere has six neutrons in addition to the proton. So it's like the total molecular weight is like 12.01 or something. And like, that's what they use as the standard for defining what a mole right. is. That uh, there's a, there's an ice, there's actually several isotopes, but the most common isotope is carbon 14. And that one is less straight, like less stable energetically than the carbon 12. And so there's like a certain rate of decay where if you measure the total ratio or if you measure the ratio of carbon 14 to carbon 12 in a sample of some kind of organic matter, you can tell how old it is based on the the amount that has decayed away. So it's like such a known thing. Yes. Except for the ability to carbon date brings us really only up until the year 1950. Uh, So I saw this clip on, uh, on QI shout out to QI fascinating British quiz show where it's a bunch of comedians talking about really interesting stuff. And they say that the present for geologists begins in 1950, and the reason for that is there were so many atomic tests and nuclear weapons tests that took place in the atmosphere that irradiated so much of the soil, that spread so much radioactive fallout that the ability to differentiate the radioactivity in, in carbon-12 versus carbon-14 samples, it was completely disturbed by the amount of carbon-14 that was produced as a result of irradiating different a different atomic species. And so now it's, those ratios are completely off. So you can't, you can't carbon date things since that time period. It's like, you can, you can date older than that. You can, you can go back and like go under like geological, you know, strata and stuff and determine how old those samples are because the fallout hasn't reached down that far. But there were, I mean, there have been thousands of nuclear tests over the years, and there were so many in the 1940s, and and, and at that in the point 1950s. we just said, there's a
0: raw, they're just collecting raw data, said so no idea how things were going to screw yeah. things up, and because I had a, I had a geology professor once that was waxing. Uh, it's waxing lyrical about like, we have no idea how this is going to affect magma. None. We have no idea. Nothing. Every volcanic reaction after this could be completely different and they might look completely different in some molecular level because we have no idea. We have, we, and like, like, Oh, well, that's not going to radiate into the surface. Like nobody knows Like they, this is so new. We have no clue. It's not like gunpowder discovered 500 years ago. It's like, we have never screwed with this.
1: Yeah, it's true. Well, and, and there hasn't been an atomic test above ground since I think Actually, I don't know when the last above-ground atomic test was. The U.S. stopped doing atomic testing in 1992. That was the date of our last test. China, I think, did its last test in 1996, just before they acceded to the uh, CTBT, which is the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Uh, There are a bunch of states, like the United States has signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, but we haven't ratified it, so we're not technically bound to it, but to show like goodwill and commitment to non proliferation, we've decided not to do any nuclear testing, and so we we, we gather data about weapons, but we use uh, scientific methods and do kind yeah. of like sub atomic like experiments that don't produce like huge nuclear yields and they don't generate essentially what we do. And and, and from
0: a game theory standpoint, and in an in international weapons communication standpoint, like to communicate power to our opponents, it would be let me see if I do a metaphor. It would be like the best athlete in the world, which in my opinion is is maybe like I don't know. TJ Watt of the, Show of the, of the yeah, best team sport athlete, the best athlete in the world. Let's we'll call him TJ Watt. It would be like him instead of going to power lift and scare the shit out of other people it would be like him being like, you know what? I'm going to do yoga, but you yeah, know that I could go lift with you and you don't want that.
1: Yeah, well and and he gets better like he he improves himself yeah. by, by yoga doing stuff. yoga like he improves his athleticism and flexibility and whatever but so I, I just think that's a that's a really interesting thing like it doesn't really have much to do with the razors that we're talking about but like the ability to gather scientific well it, it does have something to do with our last like our final razor that we're gonna, we're gonna Newtons flaming laser
0: sword. Like, Newton's yes, flaming laser
1: sword. It. Yeah, the connection there is that this uh, this radioactive fallout that has changed our ability to carbon date has put an artificial cap on our ability to look into the past and use scientific methods to learn more about things that happened previously. Right. Which we, I mean, you can't replicate an experiment that happened in the past. Or I mean, you can't you can't replicate history. Uh, by doing an experiment in a lab or in the field, like you can, you can take observations certainly, and you can do tests, but uh, there's a limit. Okay, to what you let's can get know. to
0: Newton's flaming so, laser sword and talk about it. Because before we yeah. get to that, I'm going to segue into it by saying this: I like Sagan's principle or Sagan's standard the best, and I'll, because it's the only one that I view as philosophically optimistic. It's like, this is a positive. It's, it's putting a requirement, but the requirement is kind of positive. It's exciting. If you pass the Sagan stack. I, I like that. All the rest of them yeah. are either very cold and philosophical or occasionally weirdly passive, aggressively confrontational, which is what Newton's flaming laser sword is. So a reminder of Alder's razor, also known as Newton's flaming laser sword, which he named that way to be a tool kind of, which was like meta meta. It was him being like, Oh, I'm making fun of myself, but not really. I'm kind of serious. If something cannot be settled yeah. by experiment or observation, then it is not worthy of debate. The hubris, Chris.
1: It's it really is just shocking. Like, th- so the the do you have the essay that you could maybe share? on Yeah, the screen? I would love to share this. I, want, I want people to be able to I see do this. Have it. Yeah, there's there, there's there's this essay that this comes from that uh, that this guy Alder was like I think trying to be tongue in cheek, but it's it came across as the kind of tongue in cheek where people. Will inoculate themselves from criticism by showing self awareness. It's like, well, by demonstrating that I'm self aware of the problem, I can no longer be held responsible for living out the problem. And so it's like, it's this like false sense of humility that is designed for rhetorical purposes and not for like actual intellectual curiosity. Uh, that's the way it came across to me, at least. I don't know if you have a you have a different. So reason, huh?
0: okay. So when looking for this, I wanted the basic gist of things first, and then scroll up. Scroll up to the scroll up to the top. No, so hold we on. Can, I, I will give some thoughts. Let me like give you my quick, my quick, right. my quickie right. thoughts here because, um, I wanted to do research, and for me, I kind of always look at the abstract first, right? And then I look at, and then I dive a little deeper. So for this, when there's no abstract, it's just a blog. I searched Newton. I control F'd, and I searched Newton. Like we're going to get into Newton's flaming laser sword, and I found a lot of comments about. Um, the philosophical change in direction from being a philosopher to being a scientist. And I started reading all these paragraphs N- like Newton made his philosophical method quite clear. If Newton made, he, he starts to get in and pile on Newton's stand on his shoulders and call himself a bit of a scientist, which is fine. So here it is. Sure. All good principles should have sexy names. So I called this one Newton's laser sword on the grounds that it is much sharper and more dangerous than Occam's razor. And I almost threw up in my mouth.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, uh,
0: which he's trying to be tongue in cheek, but he says, remember the, the, the thing is, it is not worthy of debate, which like what, that is not what we practice here in these United States of America, but here's the top. We're all the way at the top.
1: Yeah, so the essay is called <laughs> Newton's Flaming Laser Sword. Mike Alder explains why mathematicians and scientists don't like philosophy but do it anyway. And the, the, the beginning of this essay... It, is Mike Alder explaining why he was annoyed with a different, like a philosophy colleague once, or like when but, he was nine or ten, he had the question posed to him by some school teacher, by uh, by a particularly sadistic school teacher, in his mm-hmm. words. School teacher asked, "What would happen if an irresistible force acted on an immovable object?" And then he goes, well, my first response was that if the force was irresistible, then the object would move. But then the teacher responds, ah, yes, but the object is immovable. And so this is basically this kid's first brush with what you might call like a linguistic paradox And I think he was trying to read so far, and he's like, well, then I concluded that... I think he concluded something to the effect of, like, well, if the object moved, then it's no longer immovable, and if the force is resisted, then it's no longer irresistible, and so it can't exist. And so I think he was just frustrated by this kind of little word puzzle. And at the end of the day, there's... I think the scientist doesn't really have patience for nonsense. And that's the kind of thing that, like, sometimes sometimes these paradoxes really do just get to kind of nonsense stuff. And they demonstrate like the limitations of language and the limitations of meaning. And like CS Lewis had an example of that. That's like, Oh, can God have a, create a stone that's too heavy for him to lift. And the answer, Lewis's answer was like, well, you know, God isn't limited by, by nonsense. Like it's, it's, it doesn't, there is no meaning behind the phrase a stone that's you know creating a stone that's too heavy for him to lift. Like that, It doesn't say anything about the omnipotence of the creator that says something about the limitations of our ability to express ourselves. Right. And so the conclusion that Alder draws is not that there are limitations to language and meaning, it's that, well, science is the only way because it does away with annoying conversations like this one. And I just think there's just so much, there's so much arrogance behind this. But Nick, uh, do you remember a few years ago when... Bill Nye came out with his show, Bill Nye Saves the World of Science. Kind of.
0: It was him getting, like, angry and kind of... He was preaching to the same people that he had been teaching science to, but it was more uh, as if they had grown up and were in their early 20s, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, basically. It's like, what, what kinds of... What would a millennial looking for nostalgia want out of like a modern day take on on Bill Nye? Generally speaking, it was really cringy. Uh, It was not well received. I don't think it got renewed for. I mean, I don't know. Might have got a second season or so, but it was not. It wasn't the popular culture hit that you would expect. Like, if if there was a renewal of like Carl, like oh yeah, we're going into the vault and there's more Carl Sagan, people would love that kind of thing. Or like oh yeah, we have a fresh, never before seen slate of Bob Ross. Like they would, they would really love that sort of thing. Yeah, so this this Bill Nye show was not uh, was not the hit that it was supposed to be. I bring that up because I, I found this essay by Massimo uh, Pelucci. Massimo Uh, Pilucci. Massimo Pilucci. uh I, I apologize to to the Italians out there for that mispronunciation, but this is from the American Philosophical Association blog. He was writing in January 2018, uh, and he brings up uh, Bill Nye along with some other popular scientists. Like, if I had to like, say like, popular scientists, who would you who would you expect to be in there? Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, another example. Stephen Hawking. Sam Harris. Uh, the essay that that Pelucci wrote talks about these kind of scientific personalities delving into philosophy, basically criticizing philosophy. Are you with me?
0: Yeah, I'm with you, and I'll tell you this. So, okay, <laughs> it looks like you are not. No, with I me. I can't I can't look at things, and I have to look off screen. So. It, it first of all, right. I just I'm so distracted by the direct the ad. On the screen is for a book that is titled "Do Humanities Create Knowledge?" And like this is so, oh, it's God. so on the nose that that I was distracted by that. I mean, look at the book, Chris. Look at the hubris of the book. So I do, and honestly, not only am I with you, I know a lot about this. I studied this in college. The idea of like the the the, the conversation between what is philosophy and bullshit and what is science is what we stand on on top of all of this, and so the, when they kind of intersect and become popular in the 21st century a lot of it just becomes like essay work and not actual science because boring is hot and people have a tough time with that.
1: Well, Sam Harris was talking about this exact, that exact yeah. thing. And there's a quotation here from him that's in this essay. Many of my critics fault me for not engaging more directly with the academic literature on moral philosophy. I am convinced that every appearance of terms like meta ethics, deontology, <laughs> etc., directly increases the amount of boredom in the universe. Obviously, he hadn't listened what to the else? show, and he didn't realize that boring is it hot. could not have been better. Because though. he was saying that clearly in the pejorative. Yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson, same story. He said, and this is a quotation from Neil deGrasse Tyson, My concern here is that the philosophers believe they are actually asking deep questions about nature. Hmm. And the sci- to the scientists, it's, what are you doing? Why are you concerning yourself with the meaning of meaning? He also separately has said, I think, therefore I am. What if you don't think about it? Oh no, this is Bill Nye, actually. I think, therefore, I am. What if you don't think about it? You don't exist anymore? You probably still exist. And that's Bill Nye. So in recent years, a spate of this uh, this phenomenon that Pellucci call, or calls scientism has kind of come to light and is in the popular imagination among scientism scientists. And it's basically like the only way to understand the world is through science. Philosophy is meaningless. It's boring. It's uninteresting. And really, I think this is a case, Nick, where... We are seeing more like people who are criticizing philosophy are saying more about themselves as the critic and less about philosophy. Yeah. And I don't know if you think it's the case that like science is the only way to like understand the world that we live in, but I think it's pretty ridiculous. And there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of counter examples that would demonstrate that Alder's razor is, uh, pretty impotent. So, and not really very I useful. I do have a
0: take, and I occasionally, my words can be kind of biting because um, I am squarely you are science mm. and I am philosophy in terms of like our careers and how things have gone. No. Just like that's just kind of be... no. Mm. I Without biology. man, do I want to just say it? Um, this is really late in the episode. I know just most of the people it. have made just it this it. far. Without you can the philosophers, it. scientists would not be able to hypothesize.
1: Yeah, there, I mean, there's yeah. there, there wouldn't be the ideas science
0: We are the idea men. You are the prove it men. And and many times, most <laughs> of the ideas are like that was dumb. Try another one. But sometimes, sometimes the ideas are legit, and you're like, well, if this hadn't been banged out by elite philosophers and and novelists and and musicians and like Shakespeare deserves an insane amount of credit in science for like reasoning and logic and, and poetry and, sh- and rhythm and shit. He in- invented or fleshed out or perfected or whatever you want to say, a lot of things that should have been the birth of many scientific discussions. And it was, but he wasn't no scientist.
1: Yeah, right. Well, and you know, there's there's examples of like people who have thought scientifically yeah. and who are not r- really considered scientists. Lucretius would be an example
0: Yeah, Lucretius. We read a whole book about
1: that from the book club, The Swerve. Yeah, Greenblatt. And he he said, oh, well, yes, uh, Lucretius revolutionized the world and the rediscovery of this lost lost kind of parchment on which uh, De Rerum Natura, On the Nature of Things, by Lucretius was written. Like, that's an example of somebody who was thinking kind of scientifically, but there wasn't, like, a term for that. But this guy was a natural philosopher. So... I I don't know. I, I think it's just way overstating the case. And so here's a here's a list from this from this essay from Pellucci's essay of things that are worth debating and worth examining share that scientific literature has next to well this is on my oh, cell share, so I'm okay. sorry. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to read all of these I- individually. So here's a here's a list of questions that science doesn't really have anything to say about it and probably never will. Okay. So in metaphysics what is a cause? Oh. In logic, is modus ponens a type of valid reference? Now, I need to look up what modus, modus ponens. ponens is. Modus
0: ponens sounds like an insult you would say when you're playing video games.
1: <laughs> modus ponens. Okay, so modus ponens from the Wikipedia page. In propositional log, logic, modus ponens, also known as modus ponendo ponens, which is Latin meaning method of putting by placing, uh, implication, elimination, or affirming of the antecedent is a deductive argument from and rule of inference. So basically the question is, is that rule of inference, is that a type of valid inference or is it invalid? Hmm. In epistemology, in that field of philosophy, is knowledge just justified true belief? Or is that a sufficient definition uh, for what knowledge that's is? That's a
0: really good one for religion. Like what if it found out that it was all true right. or false? What would you do?
1: right exactly so and the, like the conditions of justified and true require a lot of That's a definition maybe the not to say, all wait. Like, Zeus. right well and, and you know maybe there's the there's a question of like okay what what constitutes belief like yeah. do we need a psychologist or do we need and a at that point it's not belief it's just fact right or not fact well i i don't know is it hey, here we are I debating it though right uh in ethics uh is abortion permissible once the fetus begins to feel pain That's an ethical question that science doesn't really have anything to say about it. Scientists have opinions on that, no doubt. And we're not going to break those down on the show because that's not what the show is about. I do have a thought on
0: that. Did you notice that scientists have a lot of opinions and you're like, well, all of a sudden, here we are debating the philosophy of this unprovable thing.
1: Yeah. So it's there's C.S. Lewis wrote about this. I'll I'll finish off with what, what Lewis had to say about it. But just to complete the list in aesthetics, is there a meaningful difference between Mills low and high pleasures? I mean, does it, make a, does it make a difference if you indulge in some kind of lowbrow entertainment versus go visit the Louvre? I mean, I don't know. Is it? Hmm. In philosophy of science. So philosophy of science, like how science is understood you know, in terms of uh, the love of wisdom. What role does genetic drift play in the logical structure of evolutionary theory?
0: That's a good one. one. Genetic drift mean? is a cool thing. We might have to do one on genetic drift one day. That's an interesting one.
1: Yeah, but we're going to need philosophers to, to inform yeah, that discussion. Then sure. philosophy of mathematics: what is the ontological status of mathematical objects such as numbers? What is a number? You ever think about that?
0: All the time. Every now and then, when I can't go to sleep, like my I told right. you, like three three x plus one, I get into some weird yeah. number theory and stuff. It's not it, it's way over my head, but I'm like, haha! All these math teachers don't know shit. You can't prove nothing.
1: Like, what, is it, what, is it, what does it even mean to be a mathematical object? Like, it's, it's completely mysterious. Mm-hmm. And scientific literature doesn't really have anything to say about that. Yeah. It's just like, well, you know, if it doesn't tell us anything, like, oh, I could still do use my calculator, so it doesn't matter. That doesn't tell us that there's value to be had or no value to be had in the discussion. That tells us that that particular scientist is uninterested in the discussion. Yeah. It doesn't say that there, that it's not worth debating. It's saying that I, the philosopher, or the, I, the scientist who reject this, have nothing of value to contribute to that conversation. Right. And I think it's just it's it's super arrogant. And you know, C. C. S. Lewis wrote about this about you know, what we can what we can kind of know and, and not know about the the nature of the world. And I, I think it's just. I forget what exactly I was going to say about, about Lewis, but you know, he, he had a thing or two to say about like when you, you, you take it for granted certain presuppositions and you, you use that like material knowledge to reject the use of philosophy. Like that's, it's completely, the, the hubris is off the We
0: charts. should interview Lewis. <laughs> Lewis. <laughs> but um, hold on. Um so this
1: (laughs) is we'll have a seance. So this is happening in
0: sports a lot with analytics people. I guess we'll wrap up on on this kind of point. But right now there are analytics people, we'll just call those the sports version of science, right? Where they've used sports results of games and workouts and then they created data that is not really provable because it's all retrospective and we know how sample sizing works that but they are—they represent here the science portion of our current conversation where there's this old school people that are built strictly on philosophy of how to do this kind of stuff. And I think there has been a war among the nerds who are like data. And then the old people are like, this is the way the game is played. And like, guess yeah, kind of like both of them are super right and they both really hate each other because they threaten the existence of the other. However, they don't recognize like, hey, data, old people, super helpful. Hey, nerds, occasionally, just wanting it more than the other team is super helpful or you can't invalidate a certain position group. For example, the nerds, the scientists, have said that the running back position is the least important and you should dedicate the least amount of picks or, or draft picks or, or money to that position. But the best team in the league right now and that is historically insanely historically good like perhaps arguably on offense the greatest team ever their best player and most expensive player is a running back so that would seem to be the exception that proves the rule or maybe the science 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 people are wrong either way the philosophy people would be like you should look into this thing though because you said that this wouldn't happen and here it is happening
1: yeah i i i Recalled based on what you were saying, what I was going to say about C.S. Lewis, and it's pretty much that like this is the the summation of the the kind of meme, the joke. Like the scientists were so busy asking themselves whether we could, we didn't stop to think about whether we should. Mm. And like Oppenheimer Oppenheimer gave us a chance to debate that that idea. In popular imagination, but like, you don't have to be a scientist to have an opinion on that sort of thing. And Lewis, Lewis is among a lot of people who have criticized scientists for like basically going beyond their like sphere of occupation. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm really, really well informed and really knowledgeable about a variety of scientific topics. And so therefore my opinion counts when it comes to matters of, I don't know, public policy or this or that political decision or this or that philosophical conclusion. And like, well, no, you're outside your you're outside your depth on a lot of the issues that are outside your bound of expertise. And like that's that's why politicization of expertise is so dangerous, because it, it is genuinely true that you need to listen to experts when it comes to esoteric topics. Like you need to listen to virologists and public health specialists when it comes to like dealing with pandemics, for example. But they can't be the be-all, end-all for public policy decisions because there are other considerations at play about which they are not experts and about which they are not informed. And so when it comes to like those really serious ethical, like when there are ethical or moral or political or policy-based intersections with scientific areas of expertise, you should listen to the scientists, but that has to inform a broader discussion. That should be led by philosophers and public thinkers. That's a really great
0: point. I could tell you being trained in kind of the... the the style of arguments and entertainment that has become news and knowing people at both Fox News and CNN and stuff and how it works and the colors and all of that kind of manipulation, I can tell you that the dangerous thing is when you have two sides of the aisle, right, especially in America, left side, right side. If an event happens and then we allow the event to happen, if the first step is is we have a take, let's find people to back our take, Mm -hmm. that's incredibly dangerous. What should happen and is equally as doable is to – Have an event happen, accept the scientific expertise part of this, and then simply form a take that is adjacent to the take that you were going to have. Like you can still be adversarial to the left or the right, but if you if you accept expert opinion, right? So at the beginning of COVID, we saw this a great example left and right. That's what happened, and it was really beautiful to watch. Like you can still hate each other and talk mad shit. If you just accept science, but when you disagree with science, then like it becomes really, really dangerous, but it's still doable. You can still hate those people. It's totally possible. Your angle can just be like, Oh, it's their fault. Done. Like I, you don't have to prove it. You just be like, yeah, you did it. You did it. You people are the problem. If you just say you people are the problem and then find an expert to back it up, it's way hard. That's way more dangerous than just saying like, Hey expert, what do you say? Oh, it's because those people are the problem. That seems like the same thing, but the chicken and egg thing. No, when the chicken comes first, that's bad.
1: Yeah, I I saw a tweet the other day. It was it was a, an interesting thread. And I, forget, I forget who said it and who it was, and I, I don't want to take the time any more time to look it up. But this guy had this kind of troubling observation. He's like, you know, I, I've been writing about you know why does why does flat eartherism why does that kind of conspiracism so prevalent and why is it on the rise? Mm-hmm. And he said like, well, when I first started working on this, I was you know, I had the kind of unquestioned assumption. Like I wouldn't have even thought to begin to question this, that most people are looking to try to find the truth in the world that we live in. But then he's like, well, I, I kind of realize over time, like the truth is such a big abstract thing. And like when you're dealing with stuff like the flat earth and like the cosmos and yeah,
0: yeah, your triangle. Right, exactly. Yes.
1: But so like, yeah, you know, I, was, I was watching a quiz show the other day, and they were like, well, you know, the universe is so huge that, like, there's no such thing as chronology that, like, spans the entire universe. Like, something that happens right now on Earth has no meaning at all That's to something that's, like, I don't know how many billion light years across the universe is. But, like, there's no, there's no connection there. And so when you're thinking on this, like, grand scale type stuff against big, difficult-to-understand opaque forces... People are not really as interested in truth because it doesn't really doesn't really apply to them. It's such a weird abstract thing that doesn't necessarily lend them value. So instead, it, most people are looking for in-group validation. You know, people are looking to try to find a narrative that gives them the reward of warmth and comfort and acceptance and support and allyship, and that. Is the basis on which you should work. So, like, you shouldn't assume that people are trying to find out the truth. You should assume that people are trying to find validation
0: from whatever we are, that they the are trying the day, to. We are pod and protect their status. We are pod and hurt animals. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Truly, we are. And so, like, I, I, I don't. Uh, it's not that I'm losing faith in science or philosophy, but uh, it's tough. It's for me it's, to it's,
0: it's not interesting. It's that we had been a religious-based species for hundreds of thousands of years. And then for the last couple hundred, we're a science-based society. And then now the swingback is happening and science has lost its footing and they've done it, in my opinion, mostly through arrogance, like Newton's flaming laser sword. Like, "haha, you are simply too stupid to participate. It is not worthy of debate because we can't prove it in a laboratory. Like, well, actually, Newton's flaming laser sword guy, Shakespeare is smarter than you by a lot.
1: Yep. Uh, I'd love to take Newton's flaming
0: laser sword and shove it up Alder's ass. Which I don't know. Maybe he is more tongue in cheek. He's just a terrible writer, which would mean even more to take the humanities. And that book, I can't get over the book. I kind of want to read it. Do humanities contribute to knowledge? Was that something something like that? I don't know. Oh, my God. They do, Chris. They do. We do. I believe. Yeah,
1: we